Okay, go ahead. First okay, question. Yes, first question. Uh, could you know maybe just a quick uh, one or two people, if there is one, who are some of the significant prophets or righteous people from, church, from the history of the Bible that maybe came from each tribe? Could you give one or two names? Does that make sense? Okay, yes. Uh, Joshua. Joshua came from the tribe of Ephraim. Joshua from the tribe of Ephraim. And that evidence is at the end of the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24, 29 to 30. 24, 29. And it came about after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in, in Timnath, Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim on the north of Mount Gaash. That's Joshua from the tribe of Ephraim. Um, how about uh, Samson? Samson was from the tribe of Dan from the book of Judges, Judges chapter 13, Judges chapter 13, 13, 1 and 2. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. And there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. So here, Manoah, the father of Samson, is a Danite. Um, Since we're in the book of Judges, one more example in Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. 4 and verse... Well, let's read verses 4 and 6. 4 to 6. Judges 4, 4 to 6. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. Barak is from Naphtali, and Deborah, presumably, is from Ephraim. Okay, a few examples. Is that what you were looking yeah, for? Yeah, well, I was wondering, is there a significant person that came from each tribe? Oh, every single tribe? Yeah. A significant... From Benjamin, there was Saul, King Saul, 1 Samuel 8 to 12. He comes from the tribe of Benjamin, especially like... 1 Samuel chapter 9. Um, also with the Apostle Paul. Yes, the Apostle Paul was from Benjamin. That's from Philippians 3. 3, 1 to 11. Apostle Paul was from Benjamin. 
um, Romans 11.1, 1, he mentions that also, that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, I don't know if we could say that for every single one. But I'll, I'll have to think about that some more. If, uh, your, if your blessing was a curse, it's kind of hard to imagine you would have a prophet in your life. Well, let's see. Uh, the tribe of Levi, Levi, the Levitical priesthood, and uh, Moses and Aaron come from that tribe. Uh, Reuben, Simeon, Issachar, in 1 Chronicles 12.32, it says the men of Issachar were men who were wise because they understood the times and knew what Israel should do. But I don't know if there is a prominent prophet that's from Issachar. I think that there are probably, I would say, the majority, yes, but not all of them. All right, next question. Uh, we read in chapter 49, Jacob's request to be buried in the land that Abraham had purchased, correct? Yes. Which would be the sort of biblical cemetery yes. that Abraham uh, started. Yes. Uh, and then back in chapter 48, with Rachel when she died, in verse 7, mm-hmm. it says that when he was on his way to Ephrath, he buried uh, Rachel. Yes. Is Do you know if that was in a cemetery as well? Or, like, how common cemeteries were in this time? How common they were? Yeah. Well, some buried, like the Egyptians, they also entombed or buried. Um, others did not. It wasn't unusual, but the patriarchs did it because of their faith. Right. That's one part of your question, right? Okay. What else are you asking? With Rachel, like, it seems that the way it's read is, that Jacob found a spot and buried Rachel and not so formal as how Jacob requested to be buried by his son in a specific place of Abraham's cemetery. Okay, let's read in chapter 35 when this happens. Chapter 35, 16. 16 to 21, 35, 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. And it came about when she was in severe labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. And it came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adar. Okay, it's 
a grave and there's a pillar there and it says to this day. To this day has to be to the day of Moses, which is from Jacob's time to Moses' time, there would have passed about 400 years. That means that it was a known place, a known site. Um, and it even continues into the time of Samuel, Saul, and David that they knew that location. First Samuel chapter 10 and verse 2. First Samuel 10, 2. When you go from me today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found, so forth. It's known as Rachel's tomb. So how would you take that? Like, was that, whose land was that? And is that just a single burial of Rachel? Or is that a cemetery that Rachel started? It doesn't say if it was a cemetery or whether it was just a single piece of ground where she was, it doesn't say, but I think it was likely a single piece. Single piece, not a, a graveyard. And the reason for that, uh, back when we studied chapter 35, 16 to 21, you may remember that the significance of this place and the tower, the pillar, this locality, has to do with the announcement of the birth of Christ. Why is it telling us that she died there and Jacob memorialized it and why it is kept in the memory of the people? And I said because it had to do with the birth of Christ. The tower of Adar, Adar means flock. So tower of the flock, it was a shepherd's tower where they could keep watch over their sheep and keep watch at night also. Well, at this place in Luke chapter 2, it says that the angels, 2.8, in the, in the uh, region around Bethlehem, it says, Luke 2.8, and in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. This is where the shepherds are told of the birth of Christ by the angel of the Lord. Um, and this connection is noted in the Targums. Remember, the Targums are important as corroborations, as evidence that the Christian interpretation is not fanciful, it's not fanatical. It's not uh, weird. It is historical, and we are consistent with historical and sound interpretation. And that's why we cite the, the Targums sometimes. Not that the Targums are always right, but they at least understand this, and they're making this statement before the Christians are, or before the post-apostolic church is making these statements. The pre apostolic period here in one targum it says quote the tower of Ader 
the place from whence it is to be, the King Messiah will be revealed at the end of the days, unquote. They say the significance of this place and this burial site near the tower has to do with the coming announcement or appearance of Christ there in that place, in that region. That's one of the targums. Another one says, quote, the place from whence the King Messiah will be revealed in the end of days, unquote. These are Jews before the, the apostles making these statements. They're not just mere historical references. They have to do with the future and with prophecy and with redemption. Connected to history. And that's beneficial because the liberal, liberal scholars would say that the Old Testament had nothing to do with those things. And all of this is an invention of either the apostles or the church that came out of the apostles. Mm-hmm. But these are examples from before the apostles that there were interpreters that weren't even Christians that were taking these passages to refer to the Messiah. Correct. So for liberal scholars to say that they don't have history on their side. No, they or, don't. Or scholarship. No, they don't. Yeah, a liberal scholar is usually an oxymoron. Because, because the liberal claims to be a scholar, but you cannot be a, a liberal and a scholar at the same time. Because as a liberal, you have to suspend your logic. You have to suspend evidence. You have to start with false assumptions. You have to have false goals. So a liberal is dubious from the very beginning. In terms of scholarship, he might have some scholarship, but he has to be doing it inconsistent with everything else I just said. So that's why I say an oxymoron. Not to say that every conservative is a good scholar, but a liberal by definition cannot be a good scholar because he's going to deny the evidence that is sitting there before his very eyes. And they will typically say, well, there's no evidence of that in the Old Testament. Well, the answer, my answer is usually, well, sir, let me show you the evidence. Right. Don't dismiss the evidence. You know this evidence exists. You know that there are Aramaic Targums. You know that there is the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. And you know that they have glosses, that is, short phrases or words or interpretations, helping the reader to understand what they are translating. You know that that exists, so why are you denying it? Why are you saying it's a Christian post-apostolic or medieval or modern Christian fanatical interpretation to make it messianic? You can't say that. You know that that's not true, so be honest. Be honest with the evidence. Um, Yes, so liberals will say outrightly, there is no evidence for any of this. No evidence for the afterlife, no evidence for salvation, No evidence for Christ, no evidence for the death of Christ, no evidence for forgiveness of sins in any spiritual, heavenly, eternal sense. They say no. That's the typical liberal approach. No supernaturalism, no miracles. So that's the worst of all the approaches. But it's the most obviously wrong approach. But another approach is the dispensational approach. The dispensational approach They don't deny miracles, usually. 
They just say they're not for today. But they don't deny miracles. And they will admit that there are a few passages in the Old Testament that are directly, the more conservative among the dispensationalists, more directly messianic, like Isaiah 53. But there's just a few. There's just a few, maybe a handful of them, only a few. They are not prolific. Messianic references, prophecies are not prolific from Genesis to Malachi. There's just a handful of them. But then other dispensationalists will say, no, no, it's full of them. The Old Testament is full of them. It's just that they didn't know about them. (laughs) That is, Abraham was told things and he didn't know or understand what he was told. Moses was told things, but he didn't understand or know what he was told. David was told things, but he didn't understand or know what he was told. Same with Isaiah. They'll say, it's there. We know it. We know it because we have been educated. We live in the, in the 2000s. We uh, have progressive revelation on our side. We have enlightenment and sophistication. We know it. Because we have the tools of modern scholarship. Okay? That's what they'll say. We know it, but they didn't know it. Well, all of these approaches, what do they do? They deny what Jesus and the apostles say repeatedly in the New Testament. And if you're reading or about to read the book of Acts, notice this in your next reading of the book of Acts. From the beginning to the end. How many times the apostles say all that we're teaching is from the Old Testament? Teaching you just what the law and the prophets say. The law and the prophets said this and now it has been fulfilled. They say that repeatedly. Which means that what the prophets prophesied as future, they saw it, they understood it, they believed in it, and then it was fulfilled in the Incarnation. And then the apostles write about what was fulfilled. The prophets prophesied and the apostles announce what Jesus accomplished in the incarnation. And they all believe the same. Prophets and apostles teaching one message. Salvation by faith in the death and resurrection of Christ for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And if you truly believe it, you will repent of your sins. And live a life for Christ from that day until you meet Christ. That's the one unifying message of the whole Bible. Genesis to Revelation. That's why we talk about these things and emphasize what we do. Because if you don't believe this, it leads to relativism and universalism. Relativism and deceit are the two hands, the twin tools that lead to universalism. And the tools are in the hands of Satan and the flesh. Satan and the flesh love to use deceit and relativism to give people the deception that universalism is true. Everybody's going to heaven, including the demons and the devil. They believe that. They don't always say that. But if you have a universalistic friend, press him on the point. And eventually he'll tell you 
Oh, yeah, yeah. The devil and the demons are going to heaven too. He won't say it at first because it's such a shocking and embarrassing thing to say. But if you press him on it, he'll say it. He'll get to that point. They all want to believe in universalism. We're all going to heaven. We're all going there. So don't be uptight. Don't be so strict. Don't say, thus says the Lord. Don't be authoritative. Well, this is what the Bible says. You don't need to do that. Because the interpretations differ because of relativism. And we're all going to heaven. So don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. Yes. As you're saying that, I'm thinking that I can't think of a worse, a worse waste of a mind and a life than to be a theologian without being a believer. Because obviously you come to everything with your emotion or your preconceived belief. I, I was telling the Sunday school class the other day, I was saved when I was 35 years old. Now, before I was 35, I had a believing wife, and I used to read the scriptures. Couldn't get anything out of it. Obviously, there's something going on there after you're saved. You get some true enlightenment, not, the, not that human stuff. And I, I feel so sorry for them, but I wish they weren't so active. What, what do you, I guess it's, is it Satan, the world, and the flesh that drive them oh, yes. to be so adamant? Yes, it is. About the, like Reagan used to say about liberals, that they know so much that isn't true. Yes. These theologians who were studying the Bible trying to disprove basically that there is a Christ and he does exist. John John 5.39 You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is these that bear witness of me. John 5.31 And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. These are the people who study the scriptures, the scholars included, but they study the pages or the words of the Bible but they don't study the object of the Bible, the focus of the Bible, how these things point to Christ, faith in Christ. And meantime, you said, is it the world, the flesh, and the devil? Yes. And the world and the flesh and the devil do this. Verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? These are man-pleasers. They want the praise of men. They want the glory, adoration, uh, approval of men rather than the approval of God, John 12, 43. That's what they want. That's what keeps them from believing in the true gospel. This even relates to our subject matter. 44, uh, sorry, 45 to 47, John 5, 45. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom... You have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The words of Christ and the words of Moses are the same. He's saying, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. If you don't believe Moses, you won't believe me. Because our messages are harmonious. It's the same message. And it's going to be Moses. You study the words of Moses in Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You study the words of Moses there and you pride yourselves in knowing the words of Moses, but you don't do what Moses told you to do. Repent and believe in the gospel of Christ. You're not doing that. So he's going to accuse you on the day of judgment of not believing what he wrote. 
which is related to the subject we're talking about. Why is it that scholars can read the book of Genesis and not see Christ? Because they don't really believe Moses. They, I believe that they came to it with a false belief ahead of time. And well, it's pretty clear. Also, I read the scriptures. You don't have that kind of understanding and discernment until you're believing. Correct. You just can't get there. If God doesn't draw you, then... Yes. God has to open our eyes. Yeah. Change our heart. And then we'll see it. Yes, another question? Another question. Uh, when we read uh, Deuteronomy 33, uh, which is the blessing of Moses, Yes, yes, you may even have a footnote. Check your Bible for verse 7. It will cross-reference this verse to Genesis 49, 8 to 12. Genesis 49, 8 to 12, a cross-reference to Deuteronomy 33, 7. And speaking of that, these other blessings have similarities to Genesis 49. In Deuteronomy 33, what Moses says has parallels to what Jacob says of the tribes in Genesis 49. That would be another place to study these uh, scriptures. In Egypt, they probably had the materials, the resources, the spices for embalming and preservation. And in Joseph's, I mean, in Jacob's case, when he was returning from Padan Aram, he was still on his way. He wasn't, his destination wasn't Bethlehem. It was farther south. And probably he didn't have what he needed. And it did say in Genesis 35, there was some distance to go. Remember that phrase? There was some distance to go. So the constraints of the situation were at hand, but the sovereignty of God was also at hand with those constraints. I think the two were together. And her death was premature and unexpected, right? Unexpected, yes. So they wouldn't be expecting to keep keep um, the spices for embalming to preserve her. Genesis 49, uh, 16 and 18, 
is that in correlation to Revelation 7 as to why they're not, man is not going to try to seal? Perhaps so, yes. People have wondered in Revelation chapter 7, why, why is it that the tribe of Dan isn't mentioned there among the 144,000? Probably because of how notorious they ended up being. So they, they represent, in a sense, not necessarily Dan the patriarch, but his descendants, that they became entirely corrupt without a remnant or very few so that they were not listed in Revelation 7. Yeah. Who's next? Just briefly back to the cemetery comment uh, question. Uh, how could we Okay, how can we practice it biblically? Well, uh, burial instead of cremation, that's one. Uh, shall we look at evidence for uh, against cremation? You briefly touched on it in the study, and you spoke about it before. Yes, um, but others may not have heard. Um, even in the book of Genesis, re remember when Judah thought that his daughter-in-law had committed adultery? What does he say about her? He says in Genesis 38, 24, Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Bring her out and let her be burned. And other burnings, um, Nadab and Abihud, the two sons of Aaron, they were burned immediately in Leviticus 10, 6. And if a, a priest's daughter commits fornication in Leviticus 21 9 it says that uh, she shall be burned with fire and then we have in chapter 20 verse 14 20 verse 14 of Leviticus if there is a man who marries a woman and her mother it is immorality both he and they shall be burned with fire that there may be no immorality in your midst and there's more examples of this, okay? So that's the infamous way in which an unrepentant sinner dies. Burial is the opposite. That's the biblical approach. And how can we practice it? One thing that people um, don't have is biblical knowledge. So we have to teach what the Bible says. Even if it will make some people upset, just teach it. Just say it and teach it. And that's one. Number two, sometimes they say, well, it's too expensive to bury. It's, it's less expensive to cremate. Well, should money be the only factor? That's a problem if they say that. That's number one. But number two, why is it expensive? It's usually expensive because of the things that they do 
to preserve the body and the accommodations they make in the so-called funeral homes where they hold services and hold wakes, viewings to see the corpse, right? How they prepare it and how long they preserve it and the time facility. But does all that have to take place? Why can't the corpse be buried within 24 hours? Why does there have to be a viewing like that? Um, that those are reasons why it costs thousands and thousands of dollars. Another reason why it costs thousands of dollars is the hands of the filthy government are in it. Because the, the government will pay these uh, funeral homes a certain amount of money or a certain limit, whatever, for this or that. And they know it, so they raise their prices because they know they're going to get money, our tax money from the government, to pay for these burials. So they make uh, a lot of wealth by raising the prices, knowing that they're going to get our tax money to pay for the burial that, that they, uh, of the corpse that they receive. Well, that's a scam too. That's the way it is with most things. Whenever the government pays for something, the price of that thing rises because those who are, are the recipients of the tax money, they are the ones who know that and they raise the prices of things. Everything costs more when you have to go through the filthy fingers of the government. So get them out of the picture. Why are they regulating things? Why are they doing this? They don't need to do this. But how would you do that? Well, some of it is uh, being involved, knowing what's going on, some of it, and, and then voting for the right candidates who will give us more freedoms. Some of it is being active yourself, becoming a candidate yourself, working in your local areas. Um, those of us who live in towns, small towns, you can run for office. You can become this or that, be a part of the planning and zoning committee in your municipality. You can, for your party, become a precinct chairman, precinct in your own precinct, voting precinct, become a chairman in, the, in your own party, Republican Party. Um, and persuade the politicians that way. You have a voice, you have a vote to make changes that way. Um, meantime, own your own property and do as much as you can on your own property. There are many things like that that you could do. If you have your own property, prepare for things now. Yes. 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 And yeah, and even tell even tell your descendants, I don't want you to watch me for three days. I don't I don't I don't need all that. Just just bury me because I'm not going to feel anything. I'm not going to see anything. It's not going to make me feel better. I'll I'll be dead by then. So you don't need to do any of that. You put a picture of me. Yeah. When I'm young, this still was good looking. Yeah. 
Not with show and not with cremation. Yes. Why is it that, uh, I mean, certainly you see in pagan cultures, atheistic cultures, that cremation is a a big part of that. But uh, this is an issue in Christian churches now, right? It's not just that the unbelievers, you know, in New York or California, wherever, are doing it. But even in Oklahoma, in the churches, people don't understand cremation, and a lot of people are doing that even in even in the churches. Yes, and the reason is because paganism has permeated the churches, okay. and paganism, um, a lot of it has to do with those in authority, both the politicians and the pastors. They're doing wrong. They're doing evil. And in the case of the politicians, they're stealing our money and then misusing our money against us. No. <laughs> they, that's what's happening. So that's why it has permeated. And then they, their sales pitch is, well, it's all taken care of. You know, uh, Medicare will take care of it. Or whatever will take care of it. So don't worry about it. It's all, it's all cared for. Don't worry about it. No sweat. It's all, and somebody else is paying for it. You're not paying for it. That's the sales pitch. When we are paying for it, and not only are we paying for it, but others are paying for it, our peers are paying for it, and our children are paying for it. Everything costs something, so why not pay the actual cost instead of the inflated cost? Yes? From time to time, a pastor does get asked after a death in the family about cremation versus burial, but it's, it's really rare. Usually, I'm asked to do a funeral, but whatever they've got said has already been done. How how strong should we be on that? As far as making sure they understand why we have a decent Christian burial versus a cremation or what have you? Is it a is it a uh, this, It's not a distinction without a difference. However, is it? Something we want to die on, that a hill we want to die on. How about that? Yes, die on it and be buried. Uh, <laughs> yes, it, it, there's always a teaching opportunity. Anytime there's anything unbiblical, sinful, wrong, it's always a teaching opportunity. And whenever we fail to teach on the occasion, then we have failed. I believed, therefore I spoke, just as it was written. 
Uh, no, I, just as it is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, so also we believe, therefore also we speak. If we believe something, then we speak up on it, to the extent we can speak up on it. And if we can influence a decision before the decision, as much as we can, we should do that. Uh, it doesn't mean uh, jumping on the people with golf shoes. You don't have to be rude and crude about it, but you should teach the people what is right. And then just let them do whatever, and then it's on them. You know, like Ezekiel, the watchman in Ezekiel 3 and 33, we are watchmen to the house of Israel, and we're supposed to tell them the truth. If they listen to it, then good. They're saved, and we're saved. If they don't listen to it, then it's on them, not on the speaker, the preacher, the messenger. But if the messenger fails, then it's his responsibility too. That's why Paul said in Acts 20, 26 and 27, Therefore, I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So I'm going to go one more level here. You have a family member of your church. They had a death. They had a cremation. Then they call you and say, will you do our services? Do you do the services or do you not? The body's already cremated. They got an urn and a shoebox or whatever, and they... You could still do it, but you ha you could still do it, but you have to teach the people yeah. about burial. Okay, that makes sense to me, and that's kind of that's pretty much what I've always done. And yes, and sometimes the people who are asking you weren't the ones making the decision. It's probably a step or two, a person or two removed. Somebody else made that decision already. It's a done deal, and the request is coming from somebody you know because they want the Christian gospel preached there, and that's why you have been invited. That may happen. And when that happens, you have what you have with your circumstances, circumstances, and you make the best of it. Well, haven't you gotten this? I want you to do my daddy's funeral, but I don't want you to talk about Jesus. If it always happens, I talk about Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> they don't drag you out of there for some reason anyway. But... Yes. Well, that, that won't happen if they already know who you are. They won't even ask you in the first place. Right. They'll just go down the block to, uh, to, to the liberal pastor and say, can you do this for me? But if they know who you are, they won't ask you. Yes? So my mom passed away from CJD, which is mad cow's disease, and legally they're required to cremate the body um, because I guess it's infectious or whatnot, or if bugs eat her body or something, uh, I don't really know the legality behind it, but I know it's the hospitals are required to cremate those bodies. What do you say to that? I mean, like it's not like I could just go and steal her body. Well, I don't believe them when they say it's contagious and all that. Mm -hmm. um, there are all kinds of diseases that are contagious, but that's the purpose of burial. Well, that's the purpose of burial, and then the danger of the con contagion isn't there. That's the purpose of burial. Um, they, they would say, well, that's the purpose of cremation. Yes, cremation takes care of that too, but so does burial. Um, that's one, I don't believe what they say, because the scientists don't know what they're talking about. They claim to be the scientists, they claim to follow the science, but they don't follow the science. 
I, I don't believe their premise in the first place, especially in the last two years. The raging pandemic is going to kill everybody. I'm alive and I haven't made a single change in my life. And I haven't been sick either, or seriously sick either, um, nor the people that I know. Um, so I don't believe what they say. That's one. Now, in terms of the decision, if they made the decision already and it's out of your control, then it's out of your control. You do what you can, whether it's persuasion or whether it's legalities, whether it's signing a paper, whatever it is, you do the best that you can in the situation. And after you've done the best you can, then the guilt is on them, not you. Am I answering your question or was there? Okay. The dead lepers, uh, how were they handled? Yes, the dead lepers. Well, in ancient times, they had spaceships, and they would send them away to Mars. Um, yes, Mars. Uh, Bill Gates and um, Jeff Bezos, they don't know that there's lots of diseases on Mars. They want us to colonize Mars, right? But they don't know. Sorry? I'd be okay if those two colonized. Yeah, let them go. Let them experiment. Let them be the first ones. Um, let them go up there. Yeah, let them go up there. Okay. Uh, yes, they were buried. The lepers were... And when you were saying that, I was thinking of the leprosy, and I didn't expand because he was satisfied. But yes, the leprosy, leprosy and all kinds of diseases exist, and they're still buried. They have been buried. And it hasn't caused more people to get sick. The insects, what is this about the insects? The insects and the uh, birds of prey, they, they are, in a sense, they are sanitizers, are they not? They sanitize the earth. That's the way God made them to be. And those nasty flies. And the, the flies, yes. So... That's the way God has made them to be. It's I, like there was a creator that decided what we needed. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then whenever there is something that needs to be buried, like excrement, the Bible takes care of that too. You, you, you Every, everybody knows that excrement needs to be buried. For example, he says here... Um, this is... Deuteronomy 23:12 and 13. You shall also have a place outside the camp and go out there. And you shall have a spade among your tools and it shall be when you sit down outside you shall dig with it and shall turn to cover up your excrement. So if you cover up the excrement then you remove the possibility of infectious diseases. You have a Ceremonial clay, but you're going to be 
you're going to be able to bury that body. And so, we, if you start talking about virology and our recent freedoms that have been denied us because of this COVID thing, well, we're going to have to have another day and another few hours. Because I used, I've sold all those tests. I've taught people how to do AIDS tests and hepatitis tests. And when all this started, I just about went crazy. But anyway, that's another time for, and that's another discussion. We're talking about burial now, but it is interesting that, what do you, what do you call that when you, you, dismiss somebody based on science or based on the presumption that they don't have any clue about what you're talking about. But there are many of us that do. Oh, that, that's called arrogance. What's it called? It's called arrogance. It's arrogance. Oh, yeah, that's what it would be called, yes. yes. Yeah. Okay, one last question. Anybody? No? No more? Okay. Then, thank you for joining us today.